0: This This is the Second Second Story Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. Today on the program, we present a story by Paula Carter. In a public discourse increasingly determined by the laws of science, we often feel that we can explain every phenomenon with this systematic, seemingly objective epistem. But what we often forget is the world is still filtered through the lens of our perceptions, which are anything but objective. What happens when the material world converges with the immaterial? Let's slide into the ocean of the unconscious. Second Story presents Paula Carter.
0: It was a warm summer night in Boston. I was asleep in my bedroom on the first floor of a three family house. The windows were open, letting in damp summer air and orange light from the street lamp outside. I remember waking and slowly opening my eyes, then jumping. Standing at the foot of my bed were two men dressed in suits. Now alert, I instinctively moved towards the head of the bed. My mind could not catch up. Who were these men? What were they doing there? What time was it? They stood as if posed for a photograph. The man standing a little in front was plump and had a round face while the one behind wore an ill-fitting suit, too short in the arms, noticeable because of the way the white cuffs popped in the dark. Both were wearing striped ties. We stared at each other. No one spoke. My adrenaline was pumping, but my rational mind sensed that something was amiss. I had been raised by a chemist father who approached everything from sneezing to scrambled eggs with an analytical mind. I had been taught that in almost every situation, calm, collected thinking was the right course of action. So I told myself I would close my eyes and when I opened them, the men would be gone. I did this once and when I opened my eyes, there they stood. I did it again, squeezing my, squeezing my eyes shut this time. Still, they remained, both of them looking at me as if waiting for something. Were they here to attack me? Steal something? They looked like they could be detectives. Had something already happened? Being a true scientist's daughter, I decided I would close my eyes one more time. And this time, count to ten. If the men were still there in the room, I would scream. So I closed my eyes and carefully counted. One, two, three, all the way to ten. And when I opened my eyes, the men had vanished. I got out of bed and went into the kitchen, turning on all of the lights. I lived with a roommate at the time who stayed up late into the night reading. He came out to see what was going on. I put water on for tea and we sat down at our second-hand kitchen table. I can't sleep, I lied. Mark nodded, glad to have company at three in the morning. I meant to tell him what had happened, but couldn't bring myself to say it. It just seemed too unbelievable. For me, things that were unbelievable were simply not to be believed. Anything worth believing had an explanation that was ripe with data. As a child, when I sneezed on a sunny day, my father didn't say, bless you. He said, the sun is causing your eyes to water and the water is dripping through your nasal passage and tickling your nose. <laughs> I preferred this to bless you. I loved that I could ask my father just about anything and get some kind of answer or reason. The world was a knowable place. You just had to do the thinking, do the research, ask the questions. I remember once watching Unsolved Mysteries with my father. There was a segment about a woman who thought her house was being haunted. During a commercial, I asked my dad if he thought ghosts existed. He proceeded to tell me all the reasons they could not. The main one being Occam's razor, which is the theory that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Turns out spirits coming back from the dead is not all that simple. (laughs) He then told me more sensible explanations, like the wind or the house settling, a reflective surface causing the light to play tricks, or simply the woman's silly imagination. I learned at a young age that things like ghosts, aliens, hypnosis, and ESP were not to be taken seriously. And anyone who thought those things were real was to be treated with a patronizing kindness. In fact, patronizing kindness was my father's default mode. (laughs) A few weeks after seeing the two men, I awoke again to find a German shepherd sitting beside me. The house that I lived in had once been a large Victorian, now renovated into apartments. My bedroom had most likely been the dining room wooden floors and high ceilings. In the dark the room looked expansive. Just as the men had, the dog looked at me, tongue out, as if waiting for something. He had long pointy ears and his head cocked to the side. I looked back at him. He seemed patient and a little expectant. It was as if he wanted me to do something or say something. We stared at each other for a few seconds. This time, I wasn't frightened. I was more confused. What was the dog doing here? I had grown up with a dog, but it was nothing like this dog. If I believed in such things, it would seem this was an emissary from another world, or me in another life, maybe a shapeshifter, perhaps the ghost of the dog that had lived in this old house years before. But, of course, that couldn't be. I wondered if he, too, would disappear if I closed my eyes and counted to ten. I tried it, and sure enough, he was gone. It was that simple, that quick. Afterward, I felt disappointed. What would have happened if he would have stuck around for a while? That summer, I was seeing a psychiatrist and had been for a few months. I had told her nothing of the visions until one day she asked me if I was having trouble sleeping. Reluctantly, I said something like, well, I have had some weird things happen to me in the middle of the night. She looked at me, straight faced, nodding away as I told her about counting to 10. I was convinced her stony exterior was hiding shock and excitement. I imagined her thinking, finally, a case where someone is actually going crazy. Her next question didn't help. She asked, Does the dog talk to you or tell you to do things? I wanted to get up and run out. Forget it. If I was going crazy, I would do it on my own. Walking back to my apartment that night, I felt unmoored. But I felt something else, too. Exhilarated. For the first time, I wondered if maybe my father had been wrong. What if I had entered into a hidden realm only a rare few were able to see? Perhaps the world was not as knowable as I had thought. And if not, that meant there were new possibilities to consider. Reality and reason could bend. And that is when I realized I wanted reality and reason to bend. I wanted to believe in ghosts and ESP and that somehow my visions were special. I wanted to believe that I had been chosen by something otherworldly, to be the recipient of visions and revelations that included men dressed in formal wear. (laughs) Don't most of us want there to be more? Aren't many of us hoping that there is a place called heaven or that tonight on the news we will find aliens have been walking among us for years? I mean, there must be more. This can't really be it. Right? The dog returned not long after. Again, he sat by my bed, tongue out. It was very early morning, and gray light was beginning to fill my room. I lay on my side and looked at him. I don't know why, but again, I didn't speak. I didn't reach out and try to touch him. Like him, I seemed to be waiting for something. I watched as the brightening light caused him to slowly fade into the morning. After telling my psychiatrist about the visions, I got the courage to tell my roommate. We were again sitting at our kitchen table, having dinner, a microwave meal of frozen bean burritos and tortilla chips. After I told him about the two men and the German shepherd, Mark looked straight at me and said without hesitation, it's hypnagogia. He explained what little he knew and then said he had a book about it, he just hadn't read it yet. He went into his room and rummaged around for a while and then came out with the book Hypnagogia by Andre Mavromatis. As it turns out, this is not as strange or paranormal as it may seem. It is a condition that affects at least a third of the population, perhaps you. It is called a hypnagogic or hypnopompic state, and reports of it date back to Aristotle, Hypnagogic is defined as the state between being awake and falling asleep, while the sister term, hypnopompic, is the state between sleeping and waking. These are the borderlands of sleep. According to the book, the phenomena that occur in this state can be visual, auditory, olfactory, or tactile. They can range from vague and barely imperceptible to concrete, full-blown hallucinations. That's me, folks. (laughs) Most psychologists explain it as a kind of dreaming with your eyes open. As I woke up, fragments from my REM dreams got stuck so that I was able to sit up, open my eyes, and move around while still dreaming. However, unlike in a dream, the images appeared to be separate from me. I looked at the book Mark had produced and felt resistance. I didn't want to read the book or even look through it. The one word summary was a reduction, a confirmation of my silly imagination, a confirmation that my father had been right all along, and all this had a very practical explanation. I wanted to dismiss the book, say, that was not actually what was happening to me. What was happening to me was far more unusual. And I did not read the book, not until much, much later. Science is beautiful. It can elicit the same wonder and awe as the specter of a German shepherd. I can marvel at how my complex brain enables me to dream with my eyes open. But that is entirely different than wondering if I had been sent a message from an unknown world. They are two different kinds of awe. One stems from knowing, the other from not knowing. The unbelievable provides us with something to believe in. Call it faith, call it humility, call it insanity. But when we let go of our attempts to reason something out, we let go of our attempts to control it. We are at its mercy. Late in August, I had my final vision that summer since I have had wisps of visions, but nothing as concrete. I awoke one night to find the Buddha. No joke, (laughs) sitting on a chair in my room. He was about two feet tall, fat, and smiling. Like the others, he was watching me. What was he waiting for? Whatever it was, I would do it. I would cross that line from known to unknown if only he could reassure me that there was some hidden mystery but that's just the thing. There is no reassurance in this realm, no proof. I opened my mouth to speak, and in that instant, he disappeared. I didn't tell my father about the visions until a few years ago. He is getting older now and is taking some medications with the potential side effects of hallucinations. So I asked him over the phone if he had ever seen anything strange. Much to my disappointment, he hadn't. But then he said, Sometimes I get the sense that someone else is in the room or in the house. This seemed just like hypnagogia, so I pressed. At night, when you wake up? Oh no, he said. This is when your mother and I are watching TV or eating dinner. Is it scary, I said, like an intruder or something? No. In fact, most often it's you. What? I imagine that you are in the room. Me? Yes, I just get the sense that you are here. I didn't know what to say. Science could not be summoned.
1: Paula's story was performed at Pub 626 in April of 2016. She was curated by Reshmi Rustabaki and directed by Julian Stroop. Billy Eline, Design Sound. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. House Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this this is the Second
0: Second Story Podcast.